Hey, welcome to the Backyard Professor videos on Mormonism tonight. I have the guest Dan Vogel for the second time in a row this week to talk more about Freemasonry and Mormonism. So let's get this road on the show. Welcome, everybody. Welcome, Dan Vogel. How are you doing tonight? Oh, hi, everybody. <laughs> we are back. Oh, I put the wrong one on us, Dan. There we go. Now we don't feel like we're crowding the screen. Holy cow. So we've had a week to ponder the greatness with which we discussed last week. And I had a heck of an adventure this week. I misplaced my book. And so. <laughs> I found it this afternoon, so I didn't get a whole lot of reading done, but Dan did. So, after all, this is his review of this book, and we're going to kind of have a fun recapitulation and discuss some historical issues with the book that Dan uh, both finds issues with, as well as likes, because that's the way every book is, as far as I'm concerned. I've never found a book yet, except the Book of Mormon, where I've totally agreed with it. Oh, okay, man. I have just sinned vilely with my comments. Hey, um, I'm going to hold on. I'm going to go to the comments to see. Hey, Debbie Joe, how are you? John Ross Marsky, Doug Vincent, Mark Crispin, how are you? Peter Higgs, Alan Young. All right. Well, I've just about said hi to everybody. That oh, hold it, I don't see you in here, Dan. Oh, wait, that's because I snuck you into the show, didn't I? All right, Dan. So here we are having a good time. Did you have a good week? Yep. Very busy. <laughs> very, very busy. I'm always That's good. Busy. too busy. Um, no, no, don't be too busy. <laughs> yeah. Getting ready for this show for part of my time. And the other part of my time, I'm um, making that video on masonry. Oh uh, yeah, part two. Yeah, you're response. still making it, boy. You put you put some serious time into your videos. You're kind of an inspiration here. <laughs> yeah, I try my best. I learn as I go. You always learn something new all the time when you yeah. run up against a problem or something. So when can we expect you to have that second video out, young man? Oh, in a couple of weeks. A couple of weeks. You're going to torture us for a couple of weeks? I'm still making it. 
Well, about halfway. About halfway. I, I, they remind me after the show that I'm going to have to start taking lessons from you on how to make better videos then, because I don't take two weeks to make mine. I do. I have taken three days before to make one. So <laughs> anyway, hey, T.O., welcome. OK, you guys, um, let's see what we want to do is. Oh, here we go. Here's a comment just for you, my friend. There you go. Can't wait for that one. Hey, how come our names aren't on here, Dan? For Pete's sake. Oh, yeah. What happened? Wait a minute. What is going on? My name is down uh, in the backstage part. I've got it on, but it's not Yeah, on. we learn as we go. Oh, I had them on last week. Is that going to do it? No. Well, I'll be darned. I wonder why. That's crazy. It, I have it show display names. All right. Well, anyway, I'm Dan Vogel and the other guy is Kerry Shirt, so we'll get this going. <laughs> yeah, I had that on. I don't know why it's not on. That's kind of weird. Okay, so let's uh you wanted to comment, you wanted to give kind of a recapitulation, didn't you, on what yeah. we talked about last week and mm -hmm. uh, possibly discuss some of the issues that they brought up in the chat yeah and uh so why don't you i hope they're here and they keep on commenting well they oh yeah 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 they'll uh they'll be here eventually commenting here and on facebook oh yeah you've been having the war on facebook and here you're the most well, not a war just they're, <laughs> they're making comments uh and that's you wonderful. know you yeah, don't have to like everything i say and <laughs> it's okay with me um but they should remember that no one has received as many bad reviews as me. <laughs> what? You haven't been reviewed until you've been reviewed by farms. <laughs> oh, that's right. And the good news is you are 100% negative reviewed. Woohoo! No, that's not true because I read out of a couple of those reviews where they thought you're your work was intriguing and fantastic and in-depth and all, even though they disagree with your conclusions. But uh, so, you know. Well, you they, they sometimes agree with me and sometimes yeah. I agree with them. That's correct. And we'll see about an instance of that tonight. Yeah, yeah, just about as often, you know, as each other. <laughs> so we're going to re recapitulate. We're going to yes. review... Some of the key concepts, and uh, I'm going to read to you some of the comments by the authors of this book uh, on various points. And according to them, I got some things wrong, and maybe I did. Okay, maybe I misread the book. Okay, so uh, let's start with the very first quote in the introduction, which would be page one of the introduction. There's this quote I, I read last time by uh, Franklin D. Richards way back in 1899. Uh -huh. and he said that um, Joseph Smith joined the Masons in order to find out what parts they had right. You know? And then I commented that, that I didn't believe that because uh, Joseph Smith didn't have to join and he certainly didn't have to establish a a Nauvoo Lodge to find out what the Masons believed. He was well aware of what the Masons believed. Then when I 
was commenting on the page uh, 17 of the introduction where they took to task some of the uh, apologists. Um, and I said, uh, they said it was a defamatory to Joseph Smith. And I said, well, uh, that's uh, how is joining the Masons just to learn what they had uh, not defamatory. Mm -hmm. And I assume the authors were on board with that quote because uh, they didn't qualify it. And then on the, the next page, they had quoted um, Franklin D. Richards again about the prophet asked the Lord and obtained a promise to restore that which was lost. And of course, that's exactly what they believe. And so I, con I concluded that they believe both things. I mean, well, uh, uh, Nick Letursky, he said that, that Dan Vogel, that right from the start, you read the Franklin, you read the Franklin D. Richards quote and claimed that it represented what we are arguing or were arguing. Even a casual reading of the book shows that we did not support Richards' claim. Rather, we argue that Joseph Smith almost certainly had an extensive awareness of the Masonic ritual from his youth. So, uh, but it's not obvious. <laughs> okay. It's not obvious that they made that connection, though. That okay. you know, it's it's you can't hold consistent inconsistent views at the same time. Why not? Oh. Well, it may have been the case that this is my response that Joseph Smith had knowledge about Masonic ritual. It is isn't clear that that the author saw that that as contradicting their other position or contradicting the Richards account. Okay. They, they let his statement stand while taking issue only with the currently, those currently holding the view that Joseph Smith embraced masonry for social and political networking or for protection. That would be mm -hmm. my main view. Um, on the next, okay. Um, then, to, to my statement, uh, Cheryl Bruno said Joseph Smith was not joining the lodge to find out more about masonry, but was trying to influence Freemasonry in Illinois. So, and why did she say that? Oh, that was in the Facebook, comments on Facebook. Oh, oh, I see. Okay. Uh huh. No, no, that was in the chat. Sorry. That was in the chat. That was in um, the chat. Uh huh. That was in the chat. And I say, like, why why should Justice Smith care about influencing masonry? Uh, he's building his own kingdom. And joining for for protection makes the most sense to me. Anyway. So at so, least so I'm, your your position is that Joseph Smith is actually uh rather than worrying about uh what may what is going on within masonry is he's more or less interested in doing his own thing yeah okay okay yeah yeah building his own kingdom not theirs um so i i'm doing this to inform 
the listeners that there was a the difference and that may I may have uh, mistaken their intention. It may not have been expressed as clearly. I mean, according to Nick, you have to read the rest of the book before you figure out that that's not their position. Mm -hmm. um, <laughs> then um, there seems to be an issue with my calling the defamatory argument. I call it the defamatory argument. Ad hominem. Okay. Uh huh. And how how were you doing an ad hominem? How did that arise? How did that come about? Okay. Well, I was talking about ad hominem circumstantial. Okay, which is different than ad hominem abusive. Ad hominem abusive, you just abuse the person, calling them names or whatever. Ad hominem circumstantial is where you use their position or their belie other beliefs to coerce them into accepting your argument rather than creating an argument and evidence that stands on its own. So it would be um, uh, so yeah, let's let me read uh, part of that. Okay. So just make sure what I'm talking about it what ad hominem is. So, so you're not attacking the authors. That's what you're trying to say. I'm saying they're using an ad hominem argument to try they to... They are using the ad hominem. Okay. The yeah. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. To coerce. This is an example of an ad hominem. Uh-huh. Is to say that they're being hypocritical. The, okay. the, the apologists are being hypocritical because if they're trying to say Joseph Smith only joined for political or social reasons, that is... Uh, defamatory to Joseph Smith because he wasn't being honest when he took the oath not to be mercenary in his joining. Okay. So in a, when, whenever somebody accuses someone of being hypocritical, and it's a very popular method of arguing, but it, it's fallacious. It's an ad hominem circumstantial. You're not addressing the argument. You're not addressing the argument, the position... Um, you are using that person's position to degrade their argument rather than addressing and refuting the argument. Okay, I, I, I get that. Okay, good, good. Um, thus, to claim that Joseph Smith and his brethren sought membership in the Masonic Lodge because they desired to prestige, protection, and power such an alliance should have guaranteed is to argue against the integrity of the prophet and his companions. So they're saying to the apologists that they are doing, they are attack, they are attacking the prophet. They are making the prophet's uh, reputation lesser uh, by arguing this rather than trying arguing against the social and political networking's argument argument by the apologists and so, anyone else that has the position, the similar position like me. So I, I emphasize the protection part because I think it's easy. It's parent. It's easy to demonstrate because that's what it's all about. Um, David, have more. Remember, uh, 
this is typical Dan Vogel. Look, he's doing what the BYP does. He's pulling out his resources off the shelf. I love this. See, don't tell me I don't have any influence. I have influenced the great Dan Vogel. <laughs> Necessity, mother of invention, huh? There okay, you go. So, right? so, so in that book, David Hackett Fisher argues in the realm of consciousness, a man who does something does it for every reason he can think of, and a few unthinkable reasons as well. Fisher also speaks of motivational pluralism and mentions psychologist Abraham Maslow's hierarchies of motivation. Robert Jones Schaefer. Robert Jones Schaefer. Now, what, what did you call that? Multiplicity plural. What was that? Pluralism? Motivational. Motivational pluralism. pluralism. What so what's mean? his motive for joining? That's what we're talking about. And so I'm saying that yeah. there could be, we should leave open the possibility that there's more than one reason. Although I think the main one and the easiest one to demonstrate is for protection. Um, okay. okay. I just wanted to make sure that was clear. Yeah. Oh, another book. Look at this. A guide, a guide to historical. A guide to historical. Who is that by? This is Robert Jones Schaefer. It's the light show. Oh, there we go. Robert Jones Schaefer. Okay. Kind of bl uh, glare. There's glare. Yeah, there here. That's better. There's a lot of glare oh, here. Um. So, uh, he talks about. It warns. Psychology has not agreed on a single theory of human personality. It gives us insights, but not answers. Historians thus will be cautious about blanket assessment of human motivation, for example, to self-interest, the will to dominate, or altruism. Motive is difficult to ascertain, to be sure. As Fisher explains, there can be no primary direct evidence of any past motive, no direct evidence. That's a good point. Yeah, but there is tacit logic of inference, which can attain a high degree of probable accuracy, and that's what right. we're looking for: probability. Your Bayesian, what would you call it? Logic. Yeah, yeah, and that I think that's honestly with this historical situation the best, uh, realistically that we can get. I mean, there, yeah. we'll never have certainty about motives. You know, that's yeah, intent. That's that's a tough one. <laughs> so, so, to me, it's obvious that Masons pr would provide protection based on the oaths that they take to protect one another and. The brotherhood and all that. Okay. Uh huh. It would be in your Bayesian theorem would be a lot easier to demonstrate than this really tangled thing of Joseph Smith being a Masonic restorer from birth almost, from the first vision at least, but even before that, according to these authors in some places. Ooh, we're going to talk about that a lot, aren't we? Probably yeah. next time, the first vision. This that, but we're going to get into a little bit here too. All right, um, all right. So I'm strapping in, man. <laughs> We've got a way to get there before we're 
we're there. We're going to have to yeah. call up Abrac or something. <laughs> so another thing uh, uh, I want to discuss is uh, what is a meta narrative? Yeah, what is a meta narrative? Mm -hmm. That's a good question. Yeah. Just what do you mean, Mister Vogel? <laughs> there's many there's many definitions of it, uh, oh, and the okay. postmodernists have taken it over. Well, they actually uh, invented the phrase, but a satisfying, coherent, grand story. It could be also a grand narrative, a meta narrative, a grand narrative. Uh, the thing like it holds the the whole Bible together. The you know that kind of. You know, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. A story, illustration. yeah, an overarching account of interpretation of events, or interpretation of events and circumstances that provides a pattern or structure that gives meaning to unrelated events. So, can I give you an example that came to mind because of what you just said? Yeah. Israel would be a meta narrative of the Bible, just like masonry is for this book. Does that sound right to you? Is that, well, is that, that, there's a way to talk about masonry and, and the influence of masonry on Mormonism without a meta narrative. Yeah. In my view, that's what should have been done. Um, Interesting. Okay. So it's an overarching uh, story about stories, you know? Uh huh. I'm, is uh, it's a story about a story encompassing and explaining other little stories within the totalizing schema okay uh over an overarching story or storyline that gives context meaning and purpose to joseph smith's whole life you know yeah. method Infinite is a meta-narrative because it attempts to explain and give meaning to Joseph Smith's whole life, not content to describe possible influences of masonry in Joseph Smith's thought. Meta, I mean, uh, Method Infinite sees Joseph Smith as having a master plan for the beginning to restore masonry from the beginning. Um one yeah the it, one thing I should clarify is that it's <laughs> to keep clear is that in writing his scriptures and in founding his church he was free to draw on anything, right? And he actually did draw on a lot of things. Yeah, based on what we're seeing, I mean, it was pretty impressive <clears throat> when uh, who was the uh, the Mormon scholar Thomas Wayment, I believe. Didn't he do that BYU study study on the uh, influence of Adam Clark? Yeah. On Joseph Smith? Yeah, that was a couple of years back. I mean, now that's, I mean, yeah, you know, we gripe about these guys holding back information and all, but th that was impressive that they've, 20 years ago, he couldn't have published that. While Blake yeah, really. was alive, he couldn't have published yeah. that. There's well, no, now it, well, it seems fact, that you guys, didn't you and uh, Metcalf talk about the influence of, wasn't that your scriptural cosmology article years ago? We talked about Clark and others, and yeah, uh, yeah, so yeah. That's, that's so, kind of interesting. To okay, so it's advantageous to talk about um, Joseph Smith putting together the inspired revision from various sources, being inspired in a more general nebulous kind of way, rather than uh, translating 
actual ancient the actual ancient text as it first read, although that's what he claimed to be doing. That's true. Yeah. Uh, but it's now more advantageous to see the the inspired revision as uh, as a just a, a general inspired commentary uh, on the text, a smoothing out of the text, a adding to the text, you know, these kind of midrash kind of things that the, these authors talk about. Right. Um, and not, no ancient text relying on any ancient text or restoring an ancient text um, because it, it's been proven that that was, is not what happened. So, um, so he could draw on anything, Methodism, Presbyterianism, Quakerism, uh, revivals, um, masonry, and it doesn't imply a belief, okay? That would be called the intentional fallacy in literature. <clears throat> But that didn't make him pro-Mason any more than it made his calling Edward Partridge to be the first bishop a pro-Campbellite because the bishops, uh, actually Singer Rigdon was a Campbellite bishop before he joined the Mormons. Okay. Or, or instituting the United Order make him a pro-Owenite, you know, Owenite commune. Or well, teaching well, yeah. by immersion, a pro-Baptist. Right. Things like that. But I think because of the nature, wouldn't you think that because of the nature of so many of his uh, neighbors and family and all being Mason, and they would have been, maybe at first the Book of Mormon was anti-Mason, but through time, uh, and true, Joseph never changed the narrative of the Book of Mormon, but through time, having all that Masonic influence would have turned him into a pro-Mason. So he would have been pro-Mason for easily a decade. And that wouldn't involve a meta-narrative necessarily, would it? Uh, that the the meta-narrative I'm talking about is that he had this plan from the beginning from, to From restore. the beginning, right. Yeah, and I'm saying maybe, maybe he didn't have that. What if he didn't have it, and yet he was pro-Mason for well, a dozen years? That would explain the pro-Mason approach, at least later on in his life. That's all I'm pointing out. It's, and, and everybody around him, obviously, they were all pro-Masons. Everyone? The, after 1835, don't you think? Well, I don't there see were any. anti-Masons were there in the, in the Yeah, uh, well, W.W. Phelps. He was, was pretty anti, bitter early on. He was an anti-Masonic publisher. Yes, he was. Canandaigua, in Canandaigua. In Canandaigua. Uh, a very yeah, important place we're going to go. Yeah. <laughs> uh, before he was a Mormon, and, and what I read recently was that he never joined the Masonic Lodge in Nauvoo either. <laughs> so, um, but Cheryl uh, says, I... I feel like Dan doesn't understand the meta narrative here, and okay. there, there shouldn't be one. That's my fun to have her expound that when she gets on here, won't I? <laughs> right. When, once she understands where once I'm coming we understand from, the, the various positions, you might yeah. take notes of some of the 
questions I have about the text. Sure, absolutely. Edition or something. Absolutely. But, um, she also said, "Yes, Justice Smith's aim was to be a Masonic restorer from the beginning." Okay, so, so she says, "I don't understand. I don't understand the meta narrative." And then she says exactly what I've been saying about the meta narrative. Okay. So there's no question Joe Smith knew about masonry and anti-masonry early in his life. And there's no problem with Joe Smith being influenced by masonry even earlier than generally believed. The question we are exploring here is, did he view himself as a restorer of masonry from the start? Finding occasional Masonic influences won't establish that. He was influenced by lots of things, restored masonry in Nauvoo. Therefore, that's what he intended to do from the start. If he, re he restored masonry in Nauvoo, therefore, that was his plan all along. And I, was, I say it was more or less an opportunity. Um, so rather it, than the it plan. presented itself to him, and he just... Okay. Joe Smith wasn't great on master plans. That's why we have him restoring the church so many different times. So he, 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 when he started dictating the Book of Mormon, he had no master plan to that either. You know, it developed as time went on. It became more and more religious. And by the end of his dictation, you could tell he's preparing and getting ready to found a church. Before... Uh, before he started, uh, well, I think that's it, because uh, of the sacramental prayers in Moroni's book. Yes, yeah, exactly. Yeah. And yeah. then you get to Nephi's prophecies. You know, he, he dictated the, the first of the devil and church of God. Yeah, yeah, and and it's prophetic, and he prophesies of himself. He prophesies that Jesus is going to appear to the Nephites, and they didn't. When you read from Mosiah up, it, it takes a while before the these prophets even know that Jesus is going to come when it, if you go according to chronology, they should have already known it. So this is Brent Metcalf's article in his book on the priority of Mosiah shows just how uh, Joseph Smith was developing even while he's dictating the Book of Mormon. So he has no like master plan. He didn't even plan on founding and restoring a church when he started dictating the Book of Mormon. It wasn't even in, his, in the works of founding a church. He was just dictating the Book of Mormon. Okay. And I'll get to that. And I'll get to th that at the end of this little segment on oh. meta narrative here. Sure. Um, so if you have a perspective when writing history, if you have that perspective, uh, and which is, sorry, I got ahead of myself. Cheryl also says, hey, just, just for the audience sake, just so you understand, I, I saw a question asking, can they call in and ask a question? And I don't have a call in uh, aspect yet on my program, but write it like ask a question in the chat and I can post it and we can discuss it um, once Dan gets done with his particular view. And also, yes, you're welcome to ask questions in the chat for now and we'll try to address them. Yeah, you should spy on the on the chat and write down the question. <laughs> um, there you go. Yeah, I've been doing that. Uh, so, so 
yeah, or call my attention to it because I'm looking at it over here too. Okay, if uh -huh. you see see one while I'm talking. Um, so Cheryl also says that no mythologizing on our part, just a recognition that there is synchronicity in the world and things we can't explain. So if you have that view, synchronicity, this opens you, and she also, uh, or they, the authors in the book mentioned uh, the collective unconscious of the nation. So if you have these kinds of views, um, when you're writing history, uh, you are mythologizing. This is the weakness of Joseph Campbell and Carl Jung. Determinism, reading into events, another form of providential, the providential view of history that the Puritans had, where God is manipulating historical events and they're trying to read the events to determine what God's disposition towards their colony is. Okay. And it's, it's the same kind of view that you, that you read in um, the Book of Mormon, where there's an ebb and flow, where God is punishing them with Indians and um, uh, all sorts of calamities and war, you know, war all the time. Sure, and, sure. Until they humble themselves and then they repent and then the good things happen and then they get proud and then uh, their pride leads to a fall and then another calamity happens. This is Mormon's uh, writing, you know, a cycle kind of a thing. And it, But it was a, a Puritan view. The Puritans even noted and published these uh, providences. And it's all imagination. I mean, they're, they're trying to look into uh, events and make up things. There's no, nothing about it. It's like reading. So, so I take, so I take it you're not, you're not real strong on the idea of synchronicity. No, no determinism. Um, or the providential view of history, you know. Um, uh, um, let's see. They, leave, they both leave a lot up to the imagination, like reading tea leaves and tarot cards. Now, in psychology and psychoanalysis, the way a person interprets events and finds meaning tells you more about that person than it does about the nature of reality. Okay. okay. So in psychology, it's, a, it's, it's one tool in which to uh, find out what people believe about their reality and right, uh, right. the nature of their reality. Uh, humans underestimate the chances for coincidence and look for patterns that's what they do. Humans, humans are pa pattern seekers, right? Yes, our brains, any... our brains evolved us that way so that we could survive. Yes, it's a survival mechanism. But that doesn't mean the patterns aren't real, though, does it? It doesn't mean they are or they're not, either way. <laughs> so that's where you have to investigate. Okay. So... <clears throat> Humans, uh, that's myth-making, where there's chaos, and uh, chaos causes stress, and the stress level goes up, and it, when they make a myth, it lowers the stress uh, 
threshold so that they can cope. Okay. okay. So that's a little psychology. But yeah, yeah, I was going to say psychology 101 with Dr. Don Vogel. <laughs> <laughs> that was kind of my minor, anyway. Um, so I was just going to say about Carl, synchronicity and Carl Jung. Jung. Carl Jung. There he is, the man. Yeah, his autobiography. I read this way back in my early 20s. And um, in Carl Jung, symbols of symbols? Oh, transformation. Uh -huh. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Oh, here's a here's a good one. This is pretty good, actually. Answer to Job. It's a little book. It's a really interesting reading. But I it's been so many years since I read it. Anyway, uh, so Carl Jung and his collective unconsciousness, synchronicity type stuff. Uh, okay. He he likes to show, um, let's see if I can find some pictures at random here. What he will do is to show uh, similar, similar motifs among different people, humans. Okay. You know, crosses. Here's a, here's a cross. And it, we, we've seen this in apologetic works. I don't know if you can see it. It's. That's pretty good. Mayan, the Mayan tree of life, actually. Oh, yeah, yeah. Uh -huh. But it's in the shape of a cross. And a lot of early uh, Christian Catholic uh, fathers and whatever priests came to uh, Central America and said that, oh, they had Christianity in America at one time. They misunderstood, they misunderstood the cosmological meaning of that symbolism, meaning the cross of the equinox above them in the sky. Yeah, uh, all that stuff. Anthony of Benny talks about that a lot in his books. Yeah. So so there's that. And, and that's Carl Jung. And that's how he kind of tried to prove his collective unconsciousness uh, theory. Which, okay. which is not too different than this is uh, this is one fold and one shepherd. Oh, yeah. My hero, Thomas Stewart Ferguson. Yeah, Ferguson. That burned my eyes. Uh, so I got this when I was I a kid. Medicine. <laughs> this book was owned by my grandma, Arvilla Vogel. Really? Yeah. yeah she gave it yeah. to me. But, and I, I just loved this book when I was in high school. But, yeah, uh, yeah, I think we all did. Yeah. <laughs> I wasn't uh, too far behind you. I had the proof. My religion was based on evidence. Okay. There anyway. you go. There you go. So he shows all these crosses. And uh, so instead of showing, uh, you know, the collective unconscious, he uses the same kind of evidence to show transoceanic diffusion, right? Between the old world and the new world. Right. So and that's, that's what we're dealing with. It's not a very good way to go about science or history. And we all know about parallelomania, right? And sand mills. Um, I've sand never mills. heard of it. I, I don't think everybody's in that. I don't everybody's think heard it. <laughs> You've heard it. It's you never, never did that. <laughs> Dan so, Peterson never did that. John Gee certainly is never guilty of that. Oh, Nibley. So Nibley. I'm just saying. <laughs> finding parallels, you know. Thousands of years across, you know, any yeah. any country, 
So anyway, that's uh, we can our parallels can get out of hand. You know, we start seeing things. It's like the so. So are you proposing that they're taking their parallels too strongly? I mean, you have to have some parallels. You can't just eliminate them. Otherwise, you have no valid way of seeing causation, right? I mean. I'm yeah. Gonna... And so the comparative method, you know, the famous Nibley quote is uh, the closer the parallel, the closer the connection. You know, so you have to be you have to have, find them in con in a context and uh, not just isolated and. Um, well, I don't know if they're isolating parallels as much as saturating them, showing that everywhere you turn in Joseph Smith's life, there is something involved in Masonic. But, and that is because of the basis of the historical era. I mean, that was the murder of Dale Morgan. I'm, or I mean, uh, yeah. William Morgan. William, I meant William. Dale Morgan, he's the historian. Isn't yeah, well. I've got his book, by the way. <laughs> you think I'm kidding, don't you? Dale Morgan right there, baby. Yeah, there you are. Signature book. I'm just saying. Yeah, I meant William. But see, with the with the with the history being saturated with Masonry, seriously, it would it would be inevitable that 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 would have to I mean they constantly talked about it. I've gotten that from other books besides this one that well so, you know I don't know if they would be guilty of over parallels. No, I would agree that uh, Joe Smith couldn't escape it, and right. he would be influenced by it, even in parts where he didn't even know. Okay, so, um, but it doesn't mean that er everything you, you look for anything that was is remotely similar. You know, right? You have to be careful about overdoing it. That's why you get the parallel mania uh, thing with the Dead Sea Scrolls. Christians, uh, some Christians went crazy with it, you know. Right. So, um, there's my friend Nick with his, you know, side. He's going to take it a task for uh, bringing up Jung. He is the doctor in Jungian psychology, you know. <laughs> okay. And and that he he's pretty good with it. I prefer Freud. I'm just saying. I'm not going to take him on. If you want to, you go ahead. Not right now, but so, I will moderate that discussion. I'm not a big Freudian either. I'm more into family systems theory, as right. Nick probably already knows. Right, right. Um. So, uh, let's go off of... Uh-oh. We have been accused of dissecting the only true gospel of the Mormon church. So there you have it. I'm just saying. Uh, so keep going. <laughs> Dan is not done yet. No, no. We are exploring the so historical aspect. So examples of uh, meta narrative in the book that quote read uh, Durham aspects of Masonic legend seem transformed into history of Joseph Smith so much so that it appears to be a kind of symbolic acting out of Masonic lore. Okay. Um, and he mentioned the coming forth of the Book of Mormon and Joseph Smith's death, even. The authors add the first vision and other events, just about everything in Joseph Smith's life. Um, 
symbol is not merely, to quoting Jack Adamson, symbol is not merely transformed into just Miss inner history, but goes beyond metaphor and the symbol merges into tragic reality. Masonry would thus influence the Mormon restoration from Vermont to New York, Ohio, Missouri, and Illinois. This Masonic technique of Midrash affected the way Smith explained his own experiences in restoring true Masonry from his first vision to his presidential campaign. Now, who is this you're reading? These are the authors of this book. Oh, okay. Every one of these. Okay. The fact they pepper their text with these kinds of statements. The fact that uh, the continued reliance of Christian ma Freemasonry was debated by Masons may be one reason Smith saw a need for its restoration and he would make it his life's work to recover what he considered lost and missing aspects of religion and Freemasonry in order to restore them to a prominent place in the lives of his associates. The Masonic timing of his prophetic uh, nature of his birth may have led his family to believe him to be the fulfillment of a legendary Masonic restorer who would aid him in their research, or I mean their search for lo the lost word. Now, this is talking about near his birth. They're looking to their son to restore because he was born four days before St. John's, uh, Saint John's day. Yeah. Yeah. St. John's right. Day. Right. And so referring to the repeated declaration of Justice Senior in the mid-1820s that his son would bring forth a book about pre-flood people hiding their treasures in underground chambers, the authors link this to Enoch's legend, the Masonic, or either Masonic or Josephus, who knows which, and then state its, its connection with Masonic lore is further evidence that local residents viewed Father Smith as having promoted his son as a Masonic restorer. And this is talking about before he even gets the plates, Joe Smith Sr. is promoting Joe Smith Jr. as a Masonic restorer. What year would that have been? What year did they say it was? Uh, it's not certain, but it's kind of a way. And and the and the quote that they they give a quote. It's Abner Cole gives the quote. And I'll, if we we might get to it in here, I'll talk about it more specifically again. But okay, uh, it's before eighteen twenty seven. Okay, before so pre yeah, and because of this one comment about chambers and uh, holding treasures, which is not just a gold plate, but uh, gold, a golden throne um, hidden in this cave. And the early accounts, as as I will get to it, is that the the plates held knowledge about where these caverns were multiple caverns and treasures were um, to be found. And that's where he was uh, going to use the gold plates before it became a religious record of any kind. This is according to Abner Cole. 
Um, it was about treasure digging, not about Enoch's plates or plate. Hmm. So, treasure diggers. Well, as I was saying, even before that, he started dictating the Book of Mormon. He had no plan to found a church to be a restorer of religion. The book was to be uh, confound, you know, uh, false doctrine and bring the existing churches into conformity with true doctrine. Uh, in March 1829, Joseph's aspirations were still modest, desiring only that his book act as a reformation, a catalyst among the al already churched. Originally, the Revelation, DNC 5, as we have it in the Doctrine and Covenants, uh, when it was first published in the Book of Commandments, had a passage in it that was taken out and replaced with another. No. Yeah. What was it? What did it say? They always did that with the good revelations, didn't they? Dang it. Yeah. So March 1829, this is... Uh, a month before Cowdery comes in April to become the scribe, it's after the loss of the 116-page manuscript. Uh, okay. And it's in between that. And Martin Harris comes to Pennsylvania to seek a greater witness. He wants to see the plates. Ah, uh, yes. Don't um, so what was the revelation that they took out? What did it say? So it says this. If the people of this generation harden not their hearts, I will work a reformation among them. And I will put down all lyings and deceivings and priestcrafts and envyings and strifes and idolatries and sorceries and all manner of iniquities. And I will establish my church like unto the church which was taught by my disciples in days of old. So, and it was replaced with uh, one that was more restorationist. This in 1835, that is, uh -huh. it was replaced with one that had more restoration, the restoration of the church, okay. which is um, says. Uh, the Book, of Mormon, the Book of Mormon is to come forth and become the beginning of the rising up and the coming forth out of the wilderness, clear as the moon and fair as the sun and terrible as an army with banners. So the church is in the wilderness. It went away entirely. And it's okay. going to come back. Sure, you know, come back. So, so this then, is one of your contentions of why it wasn't uh, necessarily yeah. Freemasonry. Joseph Smith was interested in, well, in restoring it all. It was yeah. the church. How can he have a view that he's going to be the great Masonic restorer when he doesn't even have a view of restoring the church? Um, the, the same revelation also said... Uh, He has a gift to, it's telling Harris, he has a gift to translate the book. 
and I have commanded him that he shall pretend to no other gift, for I grant unto him no other gift. That was changed to, you have a gift to translate the plates, and this is the first gift that I bestow upon you, and I have commanded that you shall pretend to no other gift until it is finished. Okay. So there's the plan has changed drastically. Yeah, well, by That's 1835, it, by 1835, it's so it's, apparently it has changed. So he changed the revelation to conform with his current uh, views of oh. what his mission is. So he's updating. Updating. Yeah. So it's a good thing he would have went out of date like modern Mormonism is if he didn't. Well, they're just doing what Joe Smith did, <laughs> changing things. Um, now I want to talk about contradiction and the idealist fallacy. Let's review what I was talking about there. The I had pointed out that the authors justify their use of pure and spurious masonry to avoid a contradiction between the Book of Mormon's apparent anti-Masonic rhetoric and Joseph Smith's apparent embrace of Masonry in Nauvoo. I mean, everybody notices that as a contradiction. And that's the first question they ask is, well, if the Book of Mormon's anti-Masonic, why did he embrace Masonry in Nauvoo? So right. they argue that the Book of Mormon is only anti-spurious Masonry. I discussed the idealist fallacy or the assumption that Joseph Smith would not contradict himself. Therefore, the Book of Mormon can't be anti-Masonic. In other words, the avoidance of the contradiction is used to justify explaining, explaining away the contradiction. Here it is important to note that the authors are using the pure spurious labels in their own way that is different than what was intended by George Oliver. The authors provide no evidence that anyone in the 1820s used it as they do. There might be, but I didn't see it, it in there. What? George Oliver's stuff? That, 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 that people were using the spurious and pure masonry oh, oh, uh -huh. to current masons within the institution. Within the institution. Um So that, that's why I say uh, there's no one in the 1820s that used it as they claim Joseph Smith is using it. Right. That is to, to distinguish between pure and spurious masons within the Masonic institution itself. The way the authors use spurious to explain the Book of Mormon is their own invention. And uh, that's pretty much explained in the book. Um that they're apl applying uh, Oliver's categories because they think uh, it describes the same activity in the Book of Mormon, which I don't believe it does. But um, <clears throat> they, what I'm saying is, they admit that they're uh, this is a uh, idiosyncratic kind of uh, use of George Oliver, but it's not. I mean, it actually comes from. Clyde Forsberg's book. 
it's a, he argued the same thing. He gave some uh, similar reasons why the Book of Mormon might be seen as pro-Masonic, mm-hmm. but they, they never referred to his uh, treatment uh, uh, about the Book of Mormon or anything else. They, they mentioned uh, Forsberg in the introduction, but then, then they forget about the book. And that book is um, that book is. Uh, Look at this! He's doing that more than I am. You're putting me to shame doing this, Vogel. <laughs> Equal rights. Slide forward. Slide forward. The late. Equal rights. Sorry to say. Uh, and what year was that book written? The late Clyde Forsberg. Um, I forget. <laughs> Oh, 2004. 2004. Same, so same, same year as my book. Same year as my book. So, um, uh, also, I also said that the urge to harmonize was what apologists do and that historians try to exploit contradictions. They live with the contradiction and they use it to find this development of thought. Um, both Nick and Cheryl thought I was calling them apologists, but I was not. I wasn't even oh, okay. saying their book was apologetic. I'm Good not even saying their book is apologetic. I'm just saying, so you come to a contradiction, not only does it is it the idealist fallacy, but it's also... Uh, there's, there's no need to harmonize. Historians don't feel an urge to harmonize things. The urge comes from another place. Um, okay, let's see. Um, oh, hold on. One last thing, one last item, and we'll get on with the work. Okay. <laughs> hey, I so, think you're doing fine. The lost word. The okay. lost word. Okay. So I was I was uh, having difficulty with this lost word. The lost word, the lost word is uh, spoken about in their book. Ooh, must be a lot. Twenty, 20 times. Yeah. So, okay. Here's it. 20 times right here. I, I, I circled these and I went through. Man, you one. do as bad as I do in your books. <laughs> I went through each one trying to figure out what's this last word. Okay. Well, Nick, Nick gave me a little hint and it was um, on 317. 317. Let's go to 317. You want me to read something? Oh, yeah, if you want, um, it's a neat little quote from um, William Clayton's journal. Oh, William Clayton journal up there toward the top. Yeah, yeah. This was June fifteenth, eighteen forty-four. That's right. If you can, you can read it. Go ahead. Sure. Joseph Smith spoke concerning key words. 
the grand keyword was the first word Adam spoke and is a word of supplication. He found the word by the Urim and Thummim. It is that keyword to which the heavens is open. That sounds familiar. I'll better yeah. know that word. Okay, so the, the authors say that really? they're going to try to be respectful of the secrets of both groups. Sure. And so they, they never they never mention what the key word is. Right. I kept looking, well, well what is this key word? Well, you know, and I yeah, figured you were kind of uh, hitting that last week. Well, yeah. Yeah. So I'm going to be how can he be a restorer if you're gonna actually restore the 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 big uh, enchilada, you know? And uh so um well you're so you're you're I assuming think, he's gonna restore it to the world. <laughs> or or at all. You know, but he did claim to do that. So I couldn't, I couldn't figure out. Okay, well, well, where's this uh, key keyword thing? And then Cheryl says on uh, Mormonism Live, well, we think they lost it again. And I'm thinking, you know, how can how can that be? That's a convenient excuse. But then I did some research, you know, and I and I, and I well, of course I know. That's what we love about you. You keep doing research. <laughs> Of course, I know what the three-syllable word is. Sure. Okay. Right. And I'm not going to mention it either out of respect for Mormons. Okay. I agree. <laughs> I'm not mentioned. <laughs> yeah. Sorry. <laughs> okay. okay. Right. So, so, but, so I went online and I found that somebody that uh, is not as respectful, maybe, that has the transcript of the whole thing. Mm-hmm. And notes the pre nineteen ninety version and, and as opposed to the post nineteen ninety version, and these words, to my bafflement, were removed. So I'm wondering, is that yeah. what Cheryl meant? Yeah. Okay, is that was Cheryl meant, isn't it? When she says they lost it again, I mean, to future generations that won't research it, you know, and uh, so. Uh, if that's what she meant, that's fine. But I still think they should have said something specific that it's it, it was these words Joseph Smith included in the endowment, but that we're not going to talk about it because out of respect or some sort of thing. So, so the reader is not going. Well, where where is this word? <laughs> this totally incomplete feeling about. You know, they're talking about this like 20 times. They mentioned the word, the key word, the, you know, right. the, the name right. of God and all that kind of stuff. And that it never happens. So. No, it, it's not that it never happened. It's that it wasn't well, given. In to the book, it never was, happens in the book. Oh, I see what you're saying. It never happens in the book. You're, you're reading. The book is like a world in itself and self-contained. It has to work by itself. You can't rely on outside things. So they should have mentioned that. Okay. Nick's disagreeing with you. Okay. <laughs> yeah, he doesn't think those were the words. Well, I do. <laughs> I think that's uh, Joseph Smith, what he's talking about there. Um, I know there's this other one uh, that they also mentioned, which makes it even more confusing that there's two different seems like there's two different things so 
um, which they didn't take out, which is not complete either. It's not a name, and it's not a three-syllable name, the thing he's thinking of. It is three syllables in the Masonic thing, but not in the Mormon thing. <laughs> the Mormon thing is like a paragraph. Anyway. Um, <laughs> anyway. So there's that. Yeah, it is interesting oh, how through the process of restoring it, it was actually, it's not that it was maintained pristinely as restored. It was it was changed through time. And see, this is one of my arguments of why, unfortunately, um, I honestly don't think today's church has Joseph Smith's vision at all. <laughs> Somewhere along the line, there's been a major disconnect. And of course, leave it to one of the prophets within Wilford Woodruff to be the one to say, well, the Lord will never allow us to lead you astray. It's not in his program. <laughs> so that's circular, you know, how do you know that? Well, because I said so, <laughs> because the Lord told me, and yet we're missing one of the crucial pieces of information so i you know we could spend a whole hour talking no, about but that. you see if they got uh, uh readers confused maybe uh they should think about revising the book and making some things a little more clear because it is the author's responsibility to be clear not the reader's responsibility um to to read a paragraph at the beginning and not know the answer until you read the whole book. So, um, I realize, you know, it's their first book and all, but uh, now we're ready to, to uh, start some new stuff. Uh, we're gonna start at a, still at the, uh, at the end of chapter one, I think. Um, where there's a paragraph we didn't read. See, I'm trying to find. Well, page 14. Yeah. Uh, no, here it is. Um, if Smith held uh, the view of Town, Hutchinson, and Oliver regarding authentic and spurious masonry and his own inspired revisions of the Bible suggests that he did, which I would dispute, this, because it's more anti-Masonic, this might significantly alter our understanding of his record recorded statements on Freemasonry. It suggests the possibility that Smith's remarks, behaviors, and perspectives on masonry were consistent and fundamentally unchanged throughout his prophetic ministry. That's a key phrase, too, right there. Okay. With such view, Smith could have condemned what he saw as false or spurious masonry while championing a pure and restored version of the craft, just as he did Christianity as a whole. But that's not... That's not what he did with Christianity as a whole. And we saw how he changed his, his approach too. But he, he, he didn't restore Christianity as a, as a whole. He restored his 
the true church. He didn't restore, like I said before, he didn't restore Methodism or Presbyterianism. Um, so, but we have, it's the, the analogy that's attempted to be made here is not working. Um, and the perspective that he remained the same consistent throughout life, that's the motivation for this meta-narrative. You're, you're saying in this book, they wanna, they're trying to make it more consistent. The, the, the need to make Joseph Smith consistent throughout his whole life okay. is the motivation for Good creating the spurious and pure masonry. Uh, so you're disputing that you're disputing that there, yeah you're disputing there was a spurious as well as a regular masonry right you, you don't think that there was a spurious masonry not in the book of mormon okay well yeah that's what i was at your, your context is that there isn't a spurious masonry in the book of mormon yeah right and that's not so the and Oliver and the others were talking about the heathen nations that degenerated and branched off from masonry, you know, the Egyptians especially. And so this need to be, that Joseph be consistent throughout his whole life is the motivation for creating this... Um, idiosyncratic definition of spurious and pure masonry. Okay, interesting. Okay. All right, what else you have? So that's my idealist fallacy. Thing. Now we're going to go to uh, um, page 17. Page 17, 14, 15, 16, 17. Okay. Oh, hey, that's the one that has that Oh, that really cool picture of that coin. Oh, yeah, the Vermont coin. Yeah, that Masonic Vermont coin. Yeah. That's kind of cool. But at the bottom of this page, they begin talking about Nathaniel Wood and the wood, what is known as the wood scrape eventually. Um, uh, a group of rodsmen in Middletown, Vermont, in the end of the 18th century or right their, their prediction actually was uh, 1802. So they start around 1800 and um, at the time this wood scrape is going on, the Smiths lived in Tunbridge about 70 miles away to the East and Joseph Smith Sr., uh, they moved briefly to Randolph, which is about 55 miles away from this wood scrape. The reason why I mention this is because in 1867, a man, a man named Barnes Frisbee uh, asserted that Joseph Smith Sr. was part of this money-digging, rod-working group uh, what they called it in the in the histories the frater, uh, fraternity of rodsmen and with this woods group with this woods group and also oliver cowdery's father 
William Cowdery in mm. in actually nearby um, Wells, Vermont. And the theory is, especially by Quinn, Mike Quinn, the theory is that uh, the that Oliver Cowdery's father was associated with the Wood Rods men, and that had, he handed down the ability to use the rod to Oliver Cowdery because when Oliver Cowdery uh, met Joseph Smith, he brought with him a rod that had told him many things. It was called a sprout in the earliest revelation. And, and when Joseph Smith in the mid 1830s was sanitizing his history, he changed it to eventually to Aaron's rod. Joseph Smith wouldn't do that. <laughs> to try to disguise what what kind so, of rod so, it was. So now these guys are utilizing uh, the gift of Aaron. This says. text is utilizing Quinn's interpretation to support that uh, situation where the fathers of Joseph and Oliver were in this woods group, right? With the Rodsman. Yeah. But well, that I, just wanted, I, I just wanted to keep clear who's saying what. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah. Yeah. I appreciate it. Um, so, and that is highly doubted, actually, even though Quinn had uh, pushed this or agreed with the interpretation that this historian in 1867 gave of the Wood movement. Right. Right. But, um, Not only that, I mean, Quinn, this was a, a tie in to rod working and money digging and associating Joe Smith Sr. with money digging in Vermont. And Quinn wanted to establish. Perhaps, that. perhaps that's why Quinn called it the early Mormonism in the magic worldview, right? It, yeah. it, it actually built up his thesis. Yeah. But, but you, don't, you don't disagree with Quinn. You don't agree with Quinn, though, do you? No, uh, yeah, we'll get to that again. Oh, okay. after we, Sorry, uh, I'm not trying to jump the gun. Try to give the perspective of these authors. Okay. That, um, and they see in it something Quinn didn't see, and they see that this group was also uh, Masonic influenced. Oh, I see how you, oh, I see where you're going. Okay. Okay. So you're on page 18. 18. Right. And right. hey, by the way, that's you guys. Oh. There you it's are. Got a great picture of uh, Ethan Allen. Yeah, there's the man. And the Green Mountain Boys. And the Green Mountain Boys. Yeah, that's uh, that's Ethan Allen. Okay. Anyway, sorry. Trying sure. to get some historic pictorial context, Mr. Vogel. <laughs> so they say the group was located in Middletown, Rutland County, Vermont, not far from the Smith family homestead. Well, it, it's um, 70 miles, anyway, to Tunbridge, right. which seems a little bit far, which is why Quinn worked really hard to find a, a Joseph Smith in Pulteney, which is closer, but there, that was the wrong Joseph Smith, with, as I showed. In my, in my first volume to my uh, early Mormon documents, I included uh, Frisbee's history, with footnotes, and I disputed a lot of what Quinn had interpreted and cited more with uh, Richard Anderson, 
uh, on that. That's the, Richard Lloyd Anderson, the, the great yeah, Mormon history. <laughs> Dan Vogel agreed with a Mormon apologist. Yeah, sometimes I told you. I told you yeah, sometimes I'm, I'm I agree saying, with We them. can't totally write him off. <laughs> <laughs> so um, I thought Quinn was a little reckless there in trying to, in believing this 1867 no, history. No, where, where, when did you, you say you put that in your uh, early Mormon documents? Early Mormon. I, I, have this whole, I have the, the whole section of Frisbee's, uh, Barnes Frisbee's history of Middletown, Vermont in three discourses. So <clears throat> with footnotes, uh, in, in a section of my document collection dealing with uh, the Smiths in Vermont and New Hampshire. Um, right. so, um, so they think that Smith's close and Quinn tried to get them closer in Pulteney. And this, uh, I did some research in the various census, censuses, and I found that uh, the same Joseph Smith in Pulteney was there uh, after this uh, period of time. After the wood scrape? After the wood scrape, he was oh, still there. Oh, you're saying that historical Way after the Smiths had uh, moved to other places and was definitely... So that would not be Joseph Smith. Right, not not them at all. So they're too far. They're, they're some, How some other researchers... In masonry, agree with this. Don't agree with the authors. Um, but uh, known as the Fraternity of Rodsmen, this band of mystics held several beliefs de uh, derived from masonry, especially the craft's royal arch tradition. Okay. So now they're going to try to establish that these Rodsmen and it's not mentioned in any of these documents that talk about this rod, this group of rodsmen. No one ever mentions masonry in association with these, this group, only this book, okay? Um, and how they get that, they held several beliefs derived from masonry, okay? Mm -hmm. Woods followers began using divining rods to ascertain the mind of God, and Wood received a revelation that they must build a temple. An esoteric practice, our authors say, rooted both in the Bible and in Masonic tradition and allegory. Well, this is, must build a temple, okay? This is Frisbee, okay? And... Okay. The, the um, Frisbee says temple in 1867, but in 1828, the Rodsman article about the same group in 1828 doesn't name the structure, but says it was then used as a barn, but was originally intended to contain a furnace for smelting and refining the ore found in the hills with the rods. Okay, so as a religious exercise, the wood scrape also made excavations in local mountains from which valuable ore was to be taken. 
authors add, recalling the subterranean cavern of Masonic legend wherein lay the gold plate of Enoch. Well, where does, where does this connection come from? I mean, you can't dig in the mountains without recalling the legend of Enoch. There's the uh, subterranean. Yeah, there's our subterranean. The nine different, different, the nine different arch. Oh, hold it, hold it, hold it. I got to shut that banner off. No, that's not the banner. Sorry. That's the comment. Sorry, I'm taking your comment off, pal. There we go. There's the nine chambers, and it shows the, uh, that gold uh, tablet of, of Enoch. The Delta, the golden tablet of Enoch that is also encrusted with jewels. So it's, it yeah. doesn't remind you of any gold plates, but here are the nine arches of the Royal Arch uh, degree legend or whatever. Thing I, mean, I can't figure out. There's <laughs> another artistic version yeah. of it. How they? I don't see the tablet it. in this one though. Yeah, turn it back to the uh, what's inside, probably the chest. But oh, there. Yeah, how did they remove the keystone without it collapsing? They were the ones that built it. They could easily remove. <laughs> I don't know. I just. But that's that's the legend. But that is the how is it that you get this every time magic, there's money digging, every time people are digging in the hills, it recalls the Enoch legend. Yeah, here's actually the uh, close-up of that Enoch triangle. Yeah, and it has the tetragrammation in the center right. in Hebrew, right. Yahweh, and then we've got the cipher. The cipher. The, the Royal Arch Cipher, holiness to the Lord, kind of supposed to be. So, um, the so I'm saying the, the connection that they're making here to prove that this group was also Masonic and the Enoch legend and Joseph Senior belonging to it, uh, and learning about the Royal Arch uh, thing uh, here maybe, is really a stretch for me. Might be for you, too, out there. Um, the, the connection with the Enoch legend, you mean? The digging the and the Masonic yeah. material? Yep. So yeah. it's a little much of a stretch. It, it, none of the sources mention Masonry, so the Masonic connection is a little nebulous here. Um, also reminiscent of the Royal Arch tradition, Wood instructed his followers that they were descendants of the ancient Jews and lawful inheritors of the whole country and that the divining rods would designate who they were. So what we have here is a group that sees themselves as, a, let's say, an American Israelite group, sort of like the British Israelites in a way but in America. I mean, it's, it's no different than what the Puritans viewed themselves as. But right. these people are divining what tribe you're from using, using a divining rod, asking, are you from this tribe? And, to, and then the, the rod dips, you know, and that is a sign that uh, 
that's that's the correct tribe okay um then uh jacob wood one of the sons of nathaniel would prophesy by means of one of these divining rods that the uh that he named saint john's rod right in royal arch masonry our authors tell us that aaron's rod which budded and blossomed and and brought forth flowers in a single day is connected with the concept of restoration and the figure of saint john has an important role in masonry you know they they observe saint john's day which happens to be four days before joe smith was born um so according to these authors here so mm -hmm. the saint john's rod though uh, might be associated with John the Revelator because the rod is predicting the destruction, <laughs> apocalypse, and all that stuff. Right. Uh, but um, uh, Alan Taylor, who uh, wrote several great articles on money digging in early America, um, and in, he's not, he's a non Mormon. Um, so he wrote when, that when was he writing? When did he write his materials? Uh, well, this article I'm reading from is 1986. Oh, sure. he got he got involved during the Hoffman forgery era. Oh, uh huh. And it was uh, published in articles associated with money digging in the American Quarterly. Oh, and, okay. other, and other places. The early Ameri the, the early Republic supernatural economy, treasure seeking in the American Northeast, 1780 to 1830. <clears throat> so he says that uh, the woods called their divining rod St. John's Rod. This probably reflects survival of a folk tradition originating in 17th century Germany that rods had to be cut on St. John's Day. Hmm. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, so, and the, what should be remembered too, and it's not discussed here by these authors, is that these American Israelites also observed the Passover, destroying angels, writing on doorposts, Jesus is our Passover, etc., they were they were doing all sorts of things that were Jewish, okay. Yeah. So, well, they were trying to tie into Israel. That makes yeah. sense. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So there's I mean, a Joseph large... Smith did a few things that were pretty Jewish, somewhat, or at least they later in you know like when Elijah came back, it was ended up being on Passover stuff like that. So interesting. Yeah. They even called themselves the Latter Day Saints. They called themselves the Latter-day Saints. That's and made right. liberal use of Masonic millennialism. They thought that, yeah, well, they used the rod. They predicted that the end, the end of the world, <laughs> apocalyptic yeah. event, anyway. Uh, her, her Earth, 1802. Yeah. And, and it, it didn't happen, and so they kind of went out. Of existence uh, shortly thereafter. That was known as the wood scrape. Yeah. yeah, the wood scrape. You know. Um, so then there's this belief, as I say, from 
Barnes Frisbee, that just Smith Sr. and William Cowdery were part of this group and that they handed uh, down to their sons, this working the rod. And um, this was all based on speculation of, a, of Barnes Frisbee. He, he interviewed all the old people in Middletown and yeah. he didn't get this part of the story from them. Okay, this is things he surmised and maybe some others surmised when they heard the Mormon missionaries preaching the gospel. They thought, oh, this is a lot similar to these uh, American Israelite group that was here. And they probably heard stories of the of the money digging that the Smiths had done uh, by 1867. Of course, it was widely known. Yeah. Um, so, um, so that's that's where, yeah. So, from Frisbee's interviews from all these different guys, and then he later wrote, that's where Quinn's getting his information, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. So all the same sources, yeah. but he, like I said, he was trying to prove Justice Senior's involvement in in using rods and money digging in Vermont. Quinn was. Yeah. That's where you disagreed with him. Yeah. I, I'm sure Joseph senior was involved with the uh, cult kind of practices in sure. Vermont because. Yeah. That's certain, not what you're disputing. There's other testimonies. There's other testimonies with, in regard to that, but his right. connection with this group is really very, very weak and, should have been approached with extreme caution uh, by itself. Besides trying to connect it to masonry, makes it even more out there historically. So I think that's okay. good enough for that. Now, more on a positive regard of the book is their discussion on page 22. The discussion um, on page 22, positive. Hey, this hey, is another good visual. Yeah. Um, it's about just that is, that is uh, a Yeah, there's a little map. Um, you can't really see it all that well, but hard to see, huh? Yeah. And, and they moved around, it. they moved around in Vermont and then New Hampshire and back to Vermont. But uh, our, our authors here talked about the Federal Lodge. Um, that Joseph Smith applied to for uh, membership, but was um, turned down. This is in Tunbridge. And he was uh, failed. And this is a discussion that was, was kind of new to me here. And I thought this is an interesting part because uh he was turned down and they speculate. And I think, you know, for what reasons, there's several reasons you can get, um, you know, fail to get membership. And, but one of them is uh, the abuse of alcohol. This is their, he uh -oh. over and this is word of wisdom yeah. time. <laughs> yeah. I'm, I'm just saying. Dean's yeah. 89. If they had just read that, it'd have been cool. That was their chief, reason perhaps and there might have been others but i note that that i like that the uh, being uh, blackballed or whatever you want to call it 
Um, on page 28, we talk about Hiram Smith and the apparent uh, naming of Hiram being from just Miss maybe could have been Lucy, but uh, just Miss Senior's interest in masonry may have led to Hiram's name. And I thought this discussion also was interesting where they talk about how many names in the census of uh, children at this time were, were named Hiram. Yeah. And that was fun to see that. Yeah. Yeah. I thought they did a good job on that. Um, then, uh, but I would know that with this name in his birth record, it's spelled with an I and not a Y, you know, H I R A M instead of H Y R U M. Yeah. And there, somewhere I read, I can't exactly remember where it was, but. There's this idea that uh, after the Morgan affair in 1926, high, people named Hiram changed the spelling from... Oh, and they're tying this into the Hiram Abiff idea because yeah. that was prominent in the Masonic thing yeah. too. And then after, yeah. of course, after the Morgan affair and Freemasonry got a black eye, people are going to quit naming their children Hiram. Yeah, so that, that actually made a lot of sense to me too. So, um, so naming Hiram in eighteen hundred, they believe shows an interest in masonry on Joseph Smith Senior's part. Assuming it was Joseph Smith Senior that named Hiram, um, but the change from Hiram to Hiram, <laughs> uh, a sign that could it be a sign? that he renounced his Masonic affiliation after the Morgan affair. The earliest Hiram with the Y spelling is 1829 testimony of the eight witnesses. Yeah. So I throw that out there as maybe some possibility to think about what the, the large question, larger question is that uh, the, the larger question is, when the Morgan affair took place, did that affect Hiram's opinion about masonry or even just Smith Sr.'s opinion about masonry? It would have had to have. Where, did they become disaffected also with... Well, the, wasn't that when... Many people that Phelps did. And those guys... Uh, I mean, uh, Phelps was the anti-Masonic publisher for sure. Yeah. And the other gentleman who, it, what's the, Martin Reed. Harris, Martin Harris oh. called the Book of Mormon, the anti-Masonic Bible, stuff like that. So, yeah. So, and a lot of lodges had to close down. Due and to a lot of lodges had to, yeah. And there was a lot of furor in the newspapers, as these guys rightly recalled as well. So, yeah, the Palmyra, Mount Moriah Lodge closed down in 1835, finally. Yeah. And the Ontario Lodge in Canandaigua closed down in 1832. So were they among those who, you know, changed their views of masonry? 
that is a question to think about. Yeah. Um, so anyway, um, page 30. Um, what, what about this? Uh, oh. oh, we already talked about the triangular on page 30. What, what else did you find that you liked? I thought this was kind of cool. We'll come back. Oh, so this uh, page on page 30 at the top, Joseph Smith reportedly found an allure in the legendary Captain Kidd's pirate treasure. And he passed. Oh, hey, Captain Kidd, I've got a picture of that. That's quite, quite possible. Keep talking. Uh, how that worked. Yeah, there we go. Under the influence of Masonic legend and physical environment in Vermont, with all the mountains and things. There is little wonder that the Smiths would take an active interest in treasure digging. So this is where I kind of wince because they're saying under the influence of Masonic legend, uh, they became interested in treasure digging rather than digging treasures becoming interested in Mason, you know, maybe the uh, Enoch legend, you know. Um, mm -hmm. What is in masonry that makes them want to be money diggers? So, except the Enoch legend, um, you know, are they looking for Enoch's plate in America? Why? Why would they be? What would? What is the connection? It doesn't seem how they slip from one the thing tablet. to the other. Yeah, is a little loose. Gold triangular uh, plate. That's the connection. Oh, there we are. There's a. Yeah, yeah oh, we already discussed that. Uh, yep. Joseph Smith Sr.'s masonry led to money digging, connected money digging to uh, Enoch's plate, is not in evidence. It's not in evidence. They're talking about things before it's even demonstrated, or there is no demonstration of it. It's an assumption. Mm -hmm. Um. Joseph Smith Sr. What well, isn't a Mason at this time? He he failed to get. He failed to get pie. Yeah, he got blackballed, didn't he? So, so what what is uh, masonry making him want to money dig for if he's not even a Mason? Um, there was an overt Masonic uh, quality to this activity of money digging. Because Masons are interested in the recovery of a lost sacred word once engraved upon a triangular plate of gold. So the m connection between money digging and the plate of Enoch, what is this? I mean, where do they get this connection? There's, not, there's nothing. He's digging for money. That's it. How is there some sort of organic connection between money digging and Enoch's plate. Uh, thus the Smith's treasure seeking was connected with a sacred holy meaning from the beginning. Mm -hmm. Well, what? So then uh, I will leave that as very loose connection being made here, no evidence, no source, and a weak construction of an argument. Um, 
They talk about Joseph Smith being born four days before St. John the Evangelist, that he was born with a cowl over his head, a veil over his face that is supposed to show the, the, uh, a special gift of seership. So that's, uh, that is in the sources. The Masonic timing of Joseph Smith's birth. I mean, who gets the connection four days before St. John's Day with masonry? That's so loose. Um, okay. So the Masonic timing and prophetic nature of Joseph Smith Jr.'s birth may have led his family to believe him to be the fulfillment of a legendary Masonic restorer who would aid in their search for the lost word. It's just too remote to make any be a cogent argument for other historians to want to follow this kind of thinking. Okay. Um, Interesting. So that's, that's all I will say at that point. Um, then on 33, page 33, did Joseph Smith Sr. join the Ontario Lodge in Canandaigua instead of the Palmyra Lodge or Palmyra's Mount Moriah Lodge? Now, um, they assert that Joseph Smith Sr. definitely joined the Canandaigua Lodge um, but that he didn't go to the nearest lodge where Hiram joined the Mount Moriah Lodge in Palmyra uh -huh. for various reasons. They tried to. I tried to try find it. pictures of that, and I couldn't do it. That Ontario Lodge—that's a tough one to find pictures of. I don't know why. Oh well. <laughs> I wanted to give us some historical context, you know. Yeah. <laughs> so they the the Palmyra Mount Moriah Lodge was founded in 1804, as they know. Um it wasn't they say it wasn't an it was a newer lodge, right. not as old as the Canandaigua Lodge. Um and so it had less time to accumulate the paraphernalia that added luster to the degrees. So that's one reason why he chose Canandaigua, but 1804 to 1817, there's not enough time to accumulate paraphernalia. I mean, how, how do you even start without it? But um, the lodge was created in response to a joint petition from brothers in two townships Palmyra and Phelps, 12 miles east of Palmyra, and 13 miles from Canandaigua. For the first few years of its existence, the lodge met alternatively in the two towns. He had petitioned this, had he petitioned this lodge, Joseph Sr. would have, have needed the unanimous affirmative vote of members from two communities for admission. Well, the problem with that argument is that um, 
This alternating between two towns ended in 1807. Before Joseph Sr. even got there, they weren't meeting in two places. They were just meeting in Palmyra. So they wouldn't need to get, uh, get the permission from both places. Plus, another barrier is that Joseph Smith Sr. is still a problem drinker at this time. Right, right. Um, Hold on, I got to wave to RFM. He doesn't know who I am. Oh. Hi, RFM. He's asking who's the dork on the left-hand side. Thanks for showing up. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, and, well, RFM is happy that Nick is commenting, and, and yeah, so am yeah. I. And he, so am not, I. I okay. haven't seen a lot of comments of Nick, but I've been trying to post them so that we have the context of his discussion too so this is awesome yes yeah i'll i'll read them carefully afterwards nick Wonderful. okay yeah 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 absolutely um so you were talking there's about no the reason there's no reason to go to canandaigua right okay um smith lived in palmyra village and didn't move south also they assumed that uh, the Smiths were living near the Manchester uh, Palmyra Township line south. Oh, good. Of the, we've got we've got Cheryl taking road. notes. We've got Cheryl taking notes. So make sure you are historically accurate, young man. <laughs> now, are you are you leading up to this chart, uh, Dan? I'm going to get there. Oh, okay. Not just yet. Right. Not I, won't, just I, won't, yet. I won't put it up yet. Yep. All right. Okay, but I'm, I'm almost there. Um, oh, it's all good. Although good. Ontario Lodge in Canandaigua was located approximately 12 miles from the Smith home on the Palmyra-Manchester border, it was clearly the older and more prestigious or prestigious uh, of the two. Okay, so um, the Smiths lived in Palmyra Village and did not move south near the Palmyra-Manchester border and occupied Samuel Jennings' cabin, by the way, until sometime between April 1819 and April 1820, according to the road lists, and didn't contract for the Manchester land until 1820. So Main Street, Palmyra, is 13.5 to 14 miles from Canandaigua, not 12. Right. Okay, so... Right. It's a small matter, but thought I would yeah. point that out. It's um, all good. Yep. Um, so this is where they say, without any equivocation. <laughs> what page? Oh, 34. Okay. All right. Next page. Uh, a search of the Mount Moriah Lodge's records has not revealed the induction of joseph smith senior but right. he does appear on the records of ontario lodge 23 well there a joseph smith appears in those records for 1818 uh whether it's our joseph smith is less certain they should have been a little more careful with their wording. Um, 
And be, it, it, after below, they go on to also talk about other Joseph Smiths in the 1820 census. Nine other Joseph Smiths. Are yeah, not, I was going to say, there's quite a few of them, aren't there? Yeah, show, show the chart now. Yeah, okay, here we go. Closer. I'm trying. You're trying this, to read it. This stupid camera. I there think you it's go. the operator. Well, you know, it, it lists uh, Farmington, Seneca, Menden, Richmond, Benton, Benton, Jerusalem, Enfield, sure? Avon. Um, and it gives mileage from the Ontario Canandaigua uh, Lodge. Eight miles, 11 miles, 15, 15, 16, 16, 19, 21, 24. Okay. So, um, and then they make the argument that since our Joseph Smith is the closest, it's probably him mentioned in the, in the Canandigua list. But that's, that's no certain thing at all, because the, on the previous page, they argue themselves that um, some of those in, in, the, in the Mount Moriah Lodge, when they checked the census, so some of these people that attended that lodge were far away as lions. They were further from Palmyra than Palmyra was from Canandaigua. So here they have people, example of people attending uh, the lodge at uh, Palmyra that are further away than the Smiths were from Canandaigua. So they... So the closest person thing really doesn't really make any sense anymore. But since it's really, we're talking about 15 miles, 14, 15 miles right. uh, to Canandaigua, there, there are people closer than the Smiths, actually. So their argument from the person closest uh, is probably the one in Canandaigua. There's an eight miles. You know, they're 15 or 14 to 15, probably. Uh, eight. There's eight, 11, 15, 15, you know, miles away. Um, so that's, that's why the distance to travel just to go to the lodge, you know. Yeah. I mean, well, I had enough trouble jumping in my car and driving seven miles up the road to get to mine in the winter, especially. So I can't. Well, well, one problem is that um, the record is saying that he was um, in 1817 or 18, 1818, let's say. It's two years from the census taking. Okay. You got a question from Dr. Latursky. And so when you when you look in the 1820 census, oh yeah, show it. There there is there is no Joseph Smith living in Canandaigua. And this this has the thing is is that here, let's look at this. Uh look at this. This is BYP style stuff right here, baby. Uh Joseph Smith, this is the can this is the Canandaigua. Uh Returns from the Ontario Lodge, uh -huh. eighteen eighteen. But see that Joseph Smith right there. Yeah. Okay. 
So go this way. Right. Residents. Residents. Canandaigua. Ditto, 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 ditto. And some people, they, they argue, our authors argue, oh, it's just copied. Uh, some of the people don't seem, going by the 1820 census, don't actually live there. They live in other places, but people are moving around. And so, but they try to say the scribe is not being careful. That's not an obvious conclusion, but go this way a little bit, and then I can't see what I'm looking at. Okay. But it has the dates of uh, being entered, apprentice, passed, and raised. Oh, uh-huh. Uh -huh. Okay. The dates. So, and the dates are, this Joseph Smith was uh, initiated in a, uh, December 26, 1817, made fellow craft in uh, May 2nd, 1818, and became a master mason May 7th, 1818. Okay. So, so it says that, that, that they live there. He lives there. That's all I know. Okay. It could be wrong, but all I have is this record and their argument isn't all that great because it's two. The census is two years later. Okay. The census is two years later. And the, the, I checked a little bit uh, of the land records of, uh -huh. about a month ago when I was reading this and the land records have uh, the Farmington Joseph that's eight miles away uh, right. had just, just purchased that farm in 1820. So okay. uh, there is some moving around. They, a lot of people move to a central town like Canandaigua is on the road, main thoroughfare. And then they move from there, they move out. Okay. So, uh, but we have nine Joseph Smiths and yeah. not a good argument for it being our Joseph Smith Therefore, it should not. They should not say uh, unequivocally. But he does appear on the records of the Canon or, or Ontario Lodge Twenty Three. He does. Well, a Joseph Smith appears. Okay. Not he does appear. Okay. So right. hey, hey, I just noticed something. Yeah, Nick, Nick. I've been having so much fun learning your view of things on this that we have been going two hours and I didn't even realize okay. it. <laughs> shall we uh shall we call that last do you do you have something else you'd like you can to quit anytime you want? You're in charge. Well, I, I'm I, I'm enjoying this. Um I think everybody else is. This is this is enormously interesting to me. Um, but uh I'll tell you what, let's why don't we, 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 that's a good stopping spot, isn't it? Right there. This is not necessarily our Joseph Smith in this lodge. Well, maybe I should, maybe I should finish at least the higher up to the membership. Uh, or, um... Oh, Doug Vincent says, keep going. So keep going a little bit. Let's do some more. Well, do some a little more bit on uh, the rest of the family, the membership of the rest of the family. Oh, yeah, yeah. Oh, that'd be great. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So, sure. um, okay. So let me ask you this page 35. I, I just want to be clear on, on your approach, your understanding. 
Okay. Um, they say since Masonic lodges did not initiate transients and would likely not have raised a brother who did not plan a long-term residence in the area, we're left with the residents listed. Okay, that makes sense. While strictly speaking, residents did not determine which lodge a man must attend, the most obvious feature of the list is that in 1820, the closest man to Ontario Lodge number 23 was none other than our Joseph Smith Sr., who was enumerated in Farmington. Is that what you're saying you don't, uh, you don't think is historically viable? Or it could be that, him, but we have a like a one in nine chance of it. A one in nine chance. I see what you're saying. It doesn't have what? to be him. What if he were? What if he? What if he were initiated in the gaps that we have in the uh, Manchester? I mean the Palmyra record. The the Palmyra record that shows Hiram Smith. We have two gaps. Uh -huh. Where we we think he was uh, initiated during these gaps, even though there's a Hiram Smith later. Okay, and the gaps are June 1820 to 21, and December to December uh -huh. 1822 to 23. What if the Joseph Smith Senior was initiated? At the same time, Hiram was. <laughs> That's interesting. His dad and his son together? That would almost yeah. make sense, wouldn't it? That's interesting. So that's another possibility. Um, what if he was never a Mason? Who, senior? Yeah. Now, we know Hiram was only, and we suspect that Hiram mentioned in the record but not necessarily, is our Hiram because uh, Heber C. Kimball had, had mentioned that Hiram had been initiated into masonry in Ontario, New York. So since we know that, okay, we have that as evidence that he was initiated in Ontario, New York. Right. Then when you, when you go to the record and you see Hiram's name, you you have a a good argument for that could not necessarily positively, but that could be our Hiram. Okay. Okay. We have no such thing about Joseph Smith senior. We have no information that Joseph Smith senior joined masonry ever. All we have is this Cunandegua record that mentions a Joseph Smith. That's it. So we're, in we're on different grounds when it, we're dealing with Joe Smith Sr. than we are with Hiram Smith. Yeah, yeah, I, I, yeah. All right, yeah, that's a good clarification. I like that. Thank you. Yeah, that's, that's interesting. So we don't have a record at all of Joseph Smith Sr. ever becoming well, a Mason? Uh, Am I understanding that right? Eber C. Kimball didn't say... Just Miss Senior was a member or was initiated. We don't have anybody else anywhere saying that he was. So that when we look at the Ken and record, we might go, oh, you know, we can't. That could be our Joseph Smith Senior. We would but have a little one more, nine, like you're saying, a little more to hold on to a toehold of some kind with Joseph Smith right. Senior. We really don't. We re we're just guessing. 
It's a wish. Okay. There's Cheryl's comment in the Mabu yeah. Lodge records. Hiram gave his home lodge as Mount Moriah. Yeah. Lodge. It mentioned by Hogan. Uh huh. Yeah, that's the one that's eight miles. Palmyra, Mount Moriah Lodge. I suppose that's the one Cheryl's talking about. I hope. No. It's a different Joseph Smith actually in Farmington. Oh. Eight miles. Okay. The one I found the record for. Okay. The, that he just purchased property in 1820. Hey. Early, um, in 1820, early 1820s anyway. Okay. I'm not trying to take you off course here, but um, the, we, we, uh, we talked about. Yeah, so, we're going to talk about that right now. Oh, all right. Keep going, then. Okay. Sorry, I, I gave it away. I blew it, man. I feel okay. bad about this. Well, we're we're going to talk about Alvin's possible Masonic membership, which we have absolutely nothing. But these authors somehow find some kind of evidence to present that Alvin may have been a Mason. And it's tied in with Alvin's uh, lap desk that is presently in the Smith, or well, it might be in the museum now, but uh, there's a replica of it at the Woods Museum, but um, it was handed down in the Hiram Smith family, Eldred G. Smith, Okay. And Elder G. Smith gave a lecture in 2003 uh, that uh, Nick heard. And in that, he said that the chet, the, this, the, this box was not only uh, a receptacle for the plates at one time, the gold plates at one time. But you can see uh, they don't really fit. And the desk is a lap desk, and it's it slants. Oh, that's fascinating, isn't it? Yeah. It slants towards you even, okay? And it looks like they, they, they actually opened up the book in order to make it look like it fits better. But Would that help us see that a little better? <laughs> yeah, you can see the angle of the desk on that. Yeah. yeah so you it's see those wings go away. So you put the desk on your lap and you can write on it and oh, sure. uh, uh -huh. you can keep what you normally would keep in a box like this, like paper and pen and pencil and ruler or some sort yeah. of things that you would normally keep in a desk like this. And yeah. so Elder G. Smith, uh, not only did he say that it once held the plates, which he was wrong about, but he also said that it contained uh, Alvin's architectural tools. And this is kind of meaningful because Alvin was the one that started building the frame house. They were living in the cabin or a cabin, uh, probably on their own property, not the, not the Jennings cabin, but they started building 
just before Elvin died, the frame house and the frame was up and then he died and they had to finish it. So they imagined that they use these architectural tools to draw the plans for this thing. But according to our authors, you don't, you really don't need to plan or draw plans to build a house. I'm not so I'm sure not about that. that. <laughs> um, but from this, they say, well, the family tradition must be wrong about architectural tools. What was really in it, and they didn't really know, understand, was that it was the symbolic working tools used in Freemasonry, like a compass and square, a plumb uh -huh. level. That Hiram, I mean, uh, Alvin kept them in. So this, this may be uh, evidence this family tradition that Alvin may have been also a Mason. Mm -hmm. So now we'll get to the Hiram Smith um, uh, Masonic records. And what we should know is that um, he appears in the um, the, the 1828, let's see. So here's the. What's this one? What's this? I have copies of all the records. Um, this is the Mount Moriah. Mount Moriah. Yeah, let's see. I forgot my camera's up here. Mount Moriah. Um. Return of the Mount Moriah Lodge, one twelve. Okay. Held in the town of Palmyra, in the county of Wayne, and state of New York, June fourth, the eighteen twenty-seven to June fourth, eight eighteen twenty-eight. And you can see that it's not all filled out. I mean, they're start. They're not doing so great. This lodge is struggling. Uh, oh, boy, this, say. All it does is show all it does is show the dues. It doesn't show any real uh, initiation date, admission date, any totals or anything. Okay, so a few pages on the next page, page two, you'll see. Uh, let's go this way. Where is it? There you go. Uh -huh. You see it? Uh, I'm still looking. Uh, you see other you see other Smiths, Silas Smith, Asa Smith. Yeah, yeah, Asa Smith. Uh huh. Yeah. Uh -huh. Yeah. David Smith the second, Hiram Smith. Yeah. Spelled with an I R A M. Okay, so then at the end. Here's, here's the end. They do include totals. Totals. Let's see. Go this way. And there's a statement at the end. It's kind of interesting. It says, uh, let's see. You have to read it. I can't read it that close. <laughs> I know. And, and we further state uh, that our dues have not been remitted. And in consequence of the embarrassed situation of the lodge, we are not able to pay them and pray the the Grand Lodge might 
re remit them. Okay, so they're 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 struggling with the other along with other lodges in the wake of the William Morgan affair. Um, okay. So, um, and they eventually closed down. Now, the thing to know is that there is another Hiram Smith living in Manchester at the same time. And this is a page from uh, Edie Howe's Mormonism Unveiled. And what, okay. what we're going to look at here is uh, December 4th, 1833, Philastus Hurlbut's group statements, uh, or November 2nd, excuse me, group statement for Manchester. He has a, one for Palmyra, a group statement, and one for Manchester. And there at the bottom, you can see there's a Hiram Smith that signed his group statement in 1833. With an IR. In 1833, huh? Yeah. 1833, there was still a Hiram Smith living there. And he is, appears on the road list as the, uh, you know, um, I don't know what you call it. He appears on the road list for, for uh, before and after 1830. So there is another Hiram Smith. So it's possible that. Hiram got initiated, and after the Morgan Fair lost interest, and that this is the another Hiram Smith that signed it. Ah. but uh, so our but our authors do have an interesting argument that 1831, uh, since Hiram moved away. The, in the 1831 returns, he is not mentioned or listed in there, but he's so also he's, not he's gone by 1831. Right. right. So he's so they argue that uh, Hiram's not listed in the 1831 returns, and that might match um, that idea that Hiram left the area, and so it might be our Hiram. The problem with that argument is that he, do, he doesn't appear before that one either. Okay. So there's a gap. So you could make an argument that the other Hiram, you know, came in. Might be another one. Yeah. Hmm. Okay. Um, yeah. So I think that that's a good place maybe to stop. I, I, I think that was, I, I'm really glad that you, you said, yeah, let's go on. Cause that kind of rounds out the whole family. Situation. Yeah, it's the whole family. It's a good place to stop yeah. for now. That's yeah. really interesting. Seeing those actual historical records copy though. That that's, that's fun research right there. That's the way I, I wish going. I had a slide. If you want, I can make them into slides and send them to you for next time. If you, well, why don't you? Yeah. Cause, cause I, I have these overheads, but they're not as effective as slides would be. So yeah. Oh, that might be harder. I don't. I don't know the difference. I, I don't know. I can. I can make send me slides. You know, early next week, tomorrow. You could probably make week. them into something else, and then Whatever I'll, I'll figure something out to do. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's all good. Okay, so that is very interesting. Now, now, okay, let's 